Gospel of Mark. And as I was thinking about this week's passage, I, I was thinking about the theme that I think many of us have in our lives of getting chosen for something, getting picked for something. You're like, me? How about me? Maybe you were a little kid and they were putting together, you know, kickball teams and two captains are decided and those captains pick, you know, they go back and forth picking and the poor kid that gets picked last realizes I'm the last, nobody wanted me, I'm just literally the last player and that's never a good feeling. But when you try out for an actual team, a, a school basketball team, a softball team, whatever it is, you need to get selected. The dance is coming up. Am I going to get picked? The person I want to go with, are they going to want to go with me? Will I get picked? Will I get selected? Or will I get passed over? You're graduating high school, you're putting out your applications, and you're applying to certain schools, and you're hoping that the schools that you pick are schools that also want to pick you. You can't just go to any school. They have to select you. They have to choose you. Maybe you're at work and sometimes the manager has some project to do and he decides to put together a team of his, his best employees to get this particular project done and maybe there's some monetary incentives in that. You want to be in that. Do you get selected? Now, most of these, your selection or not being selected is based on track record, performance, your looks, your ability, your skills. This is life. You're not going to escape that. And so we spend life trying to build up our skills. We're trying to get good grades in school because someone is going to be looking at those grades. You spend time in the mirror because you understand that even if you're not obsessed with your looks, it makes sense to show up to the interview not looking like a total bum. Right? You, you, wanna, you, know, you understand that people are looking at the outside and people are looking at what they're able to look at and people are looking at resumes and they're looking at track record and they're looking at how many points you scored in those games, how much bench time you had in order to select you. Well, Jesus is the captain of his own team, the church. And when he comes on the scene, he starts handpicking his followers. He starts choosing and selecting the ones that he wants to follow him. Now, some people just followed kind of in the background. They were really uh, enthused about his miracles and his healing, and it was the wow factor. But for some other people, it wasn't the wow factor. It was the discipleship factor. Jesus wanted them to come and be his student, to sit under him. He will be their rabbi, their teacher, their master their Lord. He's going to teach them. He's going to show them things. He's going to give them behind-the-scenes information of the miracles. Jesus will speak in parables to the crowd. Really cool stories. They sound like legends. But the disciples understand there's something he means by this. And behind closed doors, who gets the behind-the-scenes footage? Right? Who gets the bonus features on that DVD? The disciples. They get to sit with the director. Right? And figure out, okay, that's what the parable meant. The crowds don't know what's going on. They're like, wow, cool story. You got more fish? Right? Can you heal my uncle? But the disciples, it was something else with the disciples. These were not crowd followers. These were his chosen followers. Who does he pick? Who does he pick? Even in the church world, we're choosy. I remember... Ten and a half years ago now, 
I submitted an application to Christian Fellowship Church in a town I never heard of. <laughs> Been out here for a while, never heard of Itasca. I thought that was in Texas. I remember thinking to myself, would they choose me? I don't have a big track record. And it's tough on pastors. I'll tell you, most churches, what do they want to know? How big was the church when you got there? How big was the church when you're leaving? Did you grow it? How many noses and how many nickels did you bring in? That's what churches are looking for. Because we're using our outside eyes. These are the kind of eyes we use. Who would Jesus pick? Who would Jesus pick to be his first team that are going to launch the church? Not launch a church. Launch the church, capital C. They're, they're going to do this. We're going to get a glimpse of that in Mark chapter 2. So if you don't have a Bible, slip your hand up. We'll bring one to you. It's the second book in the New Testament. You can use your table of contents if you're haven't been in the Bible for a while, but Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. The New Testament starts with four Gospels. We'll be in Mark, and we're in chapter 2. If you were here last week, you remember Jesus healed a paralytic. His four friends dropped him through the roof, presumably for him to not be a paralytic anymore, and Jesus changes topics on the guy. Your, your sins are forgiven. And then People sitting around, they're kind of upset by this. You know, wow, who, who, who is he to give somebody, grant somebody forgiveness? And so Jesus is basically agreeing with them. You're right. Only God can do that. I can do that. Therefore, I am who you think I'm saying I am. And then Mark continues the story pushing forward in... Chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. You notice the emphasis. Mark is always reminding you what Jesus is about. He's about teaching. He's not about tricks. He's not about miracles. Miracles are marginal to his central mission, which was teaching. And so he's always just kind of punctuating his gospel with the fact that that's what Jesus was doing. But then crazy things start to happen. Fevers are lifted, demoniac, demoniacs are, are healed, paralytics are walking around now. But he really wanted to save this one for the end. This is the last call passage we get. He's called fishermen out of their boats. But now we get something a little different. Jesus went out by the sea. The crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them. Verse 14, as, as he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, this is one of those passages where you're, you're reading it in your quiet time, you're reading your devotional time, it's just easy to pass by and like, yeah, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, I don't know who that is, you know, sitting at a tax booth, so what? So I want to just unpack that a little bit so we get the weight of what's happening here and why in many ways this is a bigger deal than the paralytic, a bigger deal than the leper, and a much bigger deal than the fisherman that Jesus called to himself. I like how Mark gives the detail. As he passed by, he saw Levi. You know Levi, right? The son of Alphaeus. I mean, think about the readers at the time that may have had a recollection of who this guy was sitting at the tax booth. Yeah, he took my money. I know that guy. 
the son of Alphaeus. I know exactly which Levi you're talking about. There's a lot of Levi's. It's just like today, you can't just say Joe. Well, yeah, we all know a Joe. Joe who? Give him a last name. Well, that's his last name, son of Alphaeus. So we know who you're talking about. And who was this guy, Levi, the son of Alphaeus? Who was this guy? Why was he sitting at the tax booth? He was sitting at the tax booth because he's the one collecting the taxes at that booth. And if we're unsure what it means to be a tax collector, it's not enough to think of, what if I knew someone that worked at the IRS? What if I knew a politician, personally knew a politician, and they were the one responsible for lobbying for a tax hike? We probably wouldn't like them. We'd probably make fun of them. We'd crack jokes about them at dinner, but you probably wouldn't hate them. They probably are not, you know, complete derelicts in the society. We just, we have a different view of politics, and we get it, taxes, okay, and we complain about Illinois, and as long as we complain, where do you still live? Where do you still live? Illinois. Which roads do you drive on? The tollway. So we complain, we get a little glimpse of the hatred, but this is, this is next level. I was reading, you, you can, for yourself, poke around in commentaries and online and you'll see what tax collectors meant back then. Obviously, Palestine was occupied by Rome and Rome would exact the tax on the people. Why else would you conquer a land, right? But the land and poll taxes were taken directly by the Romans, but transported goods were taxed by using locals to do it. Usually, in this case, non-observant Jews would be the ones to collect the taxes on their own people on behalf of the oppressive Roman government. And so they were known for extortion, they were known for embezzlement, they were known for raising the percentage a little bit so they can pad their pockets with the extra. And they were allowed to do this. It wasn't like if they were caught, the Romans would say, oh, you're fired. The Romans would be like, yeah, I get it. That's why you want to be a tax collector. Do this for us, and you can line your pockets a little bit with the extra. Just make sure we get the percentage we're asking for. And so most of these guys, many of these guys, would embezzle and extort and be fraudulent in their dealings. And they would go from poverty to riches by taxing their own people on behalf of the conquering party. Not their favorites. We get mad at Democrats. Republicans get mad at Democrats. Democrats get mad at Republicans. But we're all still on the same side. This is not a political party. This is like if another country came and took us over and some of us started working for them and got rich off of oppressing us. One commentator wrote, Anyone who's familiar with moles and informants and the Nazi and communist regimes will have an appreciation for the loathing that the first century Jews felt for tax collectors. Loathing. I'll give you a couple insights, a few insights into exactly how this was felt. In the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament law, they would lump tax collectors together with thieves and murderers. A thief and a murderer? Yeah. Same group. You've got your liars. You've got your oops, I shouldn't have done that. You've got your adulterers. You've got your idolaters. But 
taking stuff from people. Think of how your gut is ripped out of you and you walk into your house and the place is a mess and you start realizing stuff is missing. You've been robbed. That's how they view tax collectors. Or, God forbid, you've lost a loved one because they had been murdered. Same group. That's hard for us to imagine. Tax collectors would be a complete disgrace. A tax collector would be a complete disgrace to his family. Disowned by his family. Not welcome at the table anymore. And one commentator I read said that his family would be disgraced. I mean, in the community, if your brother was a tax collector, even though you're not it, I'm not him. No, that's not me. That's Levi. Yeah, but you're his brother. And the disgrace would extend to you. This should probably go without saying, but a tax collector would be disqualified as a judge, couldn't serve as a judge. But not only could a tax collector not serve as a judge, they couldn't even serve as a witness in court. Someone was murdered right in front of them. They saw it happen. Can't even serve as a witness. You are so untrustworthy. You are such a betrayer of your people. We can't even trust your word in court. You cannot serve in court as a witness. Not only that, but tax collectors were expelled from the synagogue. That's why I said non-observant Jews. You had to be a non-observant Jew. Because once you became a tax collector, you can't observe the faith anymore. You are not welcome in the synagogue anymore. It's not like they sit in the back and everyone rolls their eyes. Oh, we know who that guy is. Give him the seat in the back. No, there is no seat for a tax collector. Not allowed to come and gather with the others for worship. You've already betrayed God, so don't be a fake and come in here and act like you're worshiping God. One commentary I read said that a touch, a touch, a physical touch from a tax collector would render you unclean. Now you've got to go to the synagogue. Jews were forbidden to receive money or even alms from a tax collector. Because now you're complicit in their robbery. I need money to buy a loaf for my kids. A tax collector goes, here, I got a dollar. Whoa. I can't do that. In fact, uh, this is funny. The Jews had a couple different schools, right? Academies. You had the Hillel and you had the Shammai houses. And they disagreed on everything. Think of like Republicans and Democrats. We can't, you know, they, we can't agree on what to do with the environment. We can't agree on taxes. We can't degree, agree on what to do about gun violence. We just don't agree on anything. This is what these houses were like. The Shammai and the Hillel were always at it with each other on interpretation of the Old Testament. Except for this. A Jew is allowed to lie to a tax collector with impunity. They're so dirty, your sin won't even count against you if you sin against them. And one commentator suggests that contact, physical contact with a tax collector may have been viewed as worse than contact with a leper because at least the leper didn't choose his position. You chose to be a tax collector. And that's disgusting. You chose to betray your people. You chose, you chose to get rich by impoverishing your own people on behalf of a people that have their boot on your neck. 
That's really unclean. So such is Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, not allowed in the synagogue, and he's made his choice. You think of Romans 125 when Paul describes people who are lost, that they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. He's the epitome of that. He knew he wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue. He knew he wouldn't be allowed to be around the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious people. He knew he wouldn't be able to sit under the reading of the Torah anymore with his people. He wouldn't be able to gather with the other Jews as they sing the songs of ascent and approach the temple. He he can't approach anymore. He can't sing those psalms anymore. It's not like he was born into being a tax collector. He chose it. He had to compete to get selected to be one. He was probably good at it. And in choosing that career, he chose to forsake God and religion. So that's why the ante is raised here. The paralytic, why was he paralyzed? I don't know. Fishermen, what were their story? What was their story? Were they saints? Yeah, probably not. They probably cussed and maybe they stole fish from other fishermen. Who knows? I don't know. We don't really know. We know what's up with this guy. He should be the last person picked for a religious team. How can a person like a tax collector who doesn't care about his family, doesn't even care about his own family, he's going to choose this career and he knows that he'll, it'll disgrace his family for the rest of their lives, but he wants the money. That's disgusting. How can he start the church with Jesus? As you're reading this, if you were a first-time reader and you were contemporary to Levi's time, you probably would have read, and as Jesus passed by, that's exactly what Jesus did. Passed that dude by. But no, comma. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and he knew exactly who he was, and he knew exactly what he was doing sitting at that tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. I love that. Just follow me. And just like the fishermen, they dropped their nets. He dropped his logbook and followed Jesus. Who does Jesus pick for his team? He picks sinners. He doesn't look at the outside. He doesn't look at your track record. He doesn't look at your performance. He knows what the performance is. And even though we look at each other and go, my performance is a little bit better than yours, that's more unclean than mine. Jesus can look at the worst, the worst, and say, follow me. That is completely backwards to our experience. Nobody's putting together a kickball team and, oh man, it takes you eight kicks to even touch the ball. Be on my team. Why would you do that? You're going to lose. Jesus picks a total loser, spiritually speaking, and calls him to be a part of his, his inside group. Now, if you put the pieces together, most scholars believe that Levi is Matthew. Matthew, the author of the book just before Mark. 
He spends time with Jesus. He witnesses Jesus. He's one of the core guys in Jesus' startup group. Jesus looks at him, calls him with that phrase, follow me, and he gets up and he follows him. This is only possible because Jesus chooses sinners to follow him. Maybe this was an exception. Maybe it was just something about Levi. Maybe Levi was weeping when he saw Jesus, and we just don't, it's just not recorded. There was something about Levi that just makes this a a marvelous exception to the rule, but Jesus isn't going to do that again. It's not like he's going to start being with these kind of people, right? Story continues in verse 15. And as he reclined that table in his house, meaning, I think, as Jesus reclined that table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So, here we have a picture of Jesus, not just calling Levi to follow him, but now goes into Levi's world, and all of Levi's friends and tax collectors, he's inviting them over to recline at the table in an intimate setting with Jesus. Now, reclining isn't like the Barca lounger where you throw the thing back and the springs pop and you're, you think you're going to fall over. It's, they were on the floor with their elbow, one elbow on a pillow facing the table, their feet, their dirty feet from the streets, right, facing away from the table. And they would surround the table like that with one elbow on a pillow and the other hand for eating and dipping and grabbing the bread. That's how they would eat. But it was very intimate. You're, you're lying next to each other in a around a table. That would be reserved for families and friends. And Jesus is doing that with tax collectors and sinners. Do you see tax collectors get their own category? Tax collectors and sinners. I thought tax collectors were sinners. Well, they are, but we just need to be really clear that it's sinners and then even tax collectors and sinners. It's like, how bad can it be? And when you see the word sinners there, it's the same word that is used throughout all of the Psalms. But when you read in your English translation in the Psalms, they use the word wicked. You remember Psalm 1? Some of you may have it memorized. Psalm chapter 1. Before you get into any of the Psalms, the way they want to start you off, that you're a blessed person if you don't stand with the sinners, if you don't Walk with the sinners. If you don't sit with the sinners, don't do any of that stuff with sinners. But instead, delight in the law of the word, uh, the law of the Lord. Do not sit with them. Do not stand with them. Do not walk with them. They're the wicked. They're the sinners. Here's Jesus reclining with them. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We've got plenty of ammo there, lots of meat that communicate to us that we as believers need to be separate. What does light have to do with darkness? That we shouldn't listen to their songs and we shouldn't dance to their music and we shouldn't shouldn't laugh at their dirty jokes. The dirty stuff shouldn't be funny to us. So when they sit around the table talking about how many you know, exploits they've done in the world. We're not supposed to go, ha-ha, 
Be separate. What was the whole point of the Old Testament when, when God was telling them, you need to go into the land and wipe all of them out because if you don't wipe them out, you'll mingle with them. And if you mingle with them, you can't follow me. There is no mingling with the darkness and following the God of light. You have to stay within the light and, and, and kind of shun the, the darkness. We're not going to walk through those passages. I think those of you who have been around Scripture long enough, you know what I'm talking about. It's very clear. You're not supposed to marry them. You're not supposed to be among them. Or Psalm 1, walk, stand, or sit with them. I mean, it says it right there. And then here comes Jesus kind of kicking the door down on all those passages, it seems like. And he's reclining with them. That tax collector touched that bread, and then Jesus is touching the bread. Oop, his elbow touched that dude. That's Levi's brother. And for, uh, let's put aside the tax collectors for a minute. He's sitting with the wicked in general. All the other categories that we would call wicked. The liars and the idolaters. These people don't go to church. These people don't go to the synagogue. They don't read scripture. They don't care. They've cast it off. They're angry at God for the Roman oppression, or whatever their reasoning is. And here's Jesus reclining with them, literally sitting with them, having a meal with them. It's interesting that in the previous paragraph, when Jesus heals the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven. Right? He forgives his sins, but there's still a little bit of a distance there because the dude gets up and he goes home. Jesus touches the leper, and he tells the leper, now go, go, to the, go to the priest and make sure you get cleansed. And So there's always kind of a sending away. Yeah, it was dirty, and it was unclean, but Jesus kind of reverses that, and he can send them away clean. Whether that be a physical disease or a spiritual disease, Jesus can extract it. Get rid of it for you. But then, go home. This is different. He picks the worst of the bunch. Everybody hates this guy. People at least felt bad for the paralytic, probably felt bad for the leper. People hate Levi, and Jesus wants to make an object lesson out of him. I'm not just going to heal you and tell you to go home. I'm not even going to tell you to stop robbing your people. I'm going to tell you to be my disciple. Follow me. And he goes to his house. It's very intimate. And it seems opposite to what we see in Scripture about separateness. Now, if you're in here and you're kind of feeling that rub, you're like, yeah, that, that is kind of strange. You're not alone. Because that's how they felt then. If you look in the next line, it says the scribes of the Pharisees. Now, we're, I know we're trained to hate the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, until you realize you're them, right? But these are people that they've, fors- they've done the opposite of Levi. They've forsaken riches. They've forsaken money to just study the law all day. They're the nerdy church people that aren't very popular out there. You know, they're not jocks. They're not, they're not soldiers. They just read scrolls. And they have an issue with this. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. You could just have been, you could have just spent some time reading some of Paul's letters about the immoral man in Corinth 
What does Paul tell them to do? Expel the brother. Hand him over. Expel him. Get him out of here. Don't associate with him. Don't eat with him. Don't make him think that his sin is okay. You got to get him out. He's getting it from Jesus, Matthew 18. Someone's a sinner. They're rebuked. They say, I'm not going to be rebuked. I'm not repenting. Then consider him outside of the church as a pagan and a tax collector. Well, that's weird because here Jesus is eating with them and reclining with them. So you see how the, the Pharisees, are they're confused. They're like, wait a minute. Here's everything we know about the Old Testament, and here's Jesus doing the opposite. Here's Psalm 1 telling us what the blessed man is like, and here's this man acting not blessed. If you're not blessed, what are you, cursed? He can't be favored by God. They're trying to put the pieces together. They can't. They're objecting to Jesus eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, and they even pulled some of his disciples aside. You don't want to take Jesus straight on, you know, so you just pull, pull aside some of his quieter disciples and say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Please explain this. I, I can't understand. I can show you chapter and verse why he shouldn't, but he, here he is. Please explain it to me. Poor fisherman or whoever, like, uh, Jesus rescues them. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, and he pulls a proverb on them, not an Old Testament proverb, but a phrase that was known among, among them at the time. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's how Jesus explains himself. He explains himself by likening himself to a physician. What does a physician do? A physician spends time with sick people. Physician doesn't go, oh, sick, leave me alone, and then only spend time with healed people. That wouldn't make any sense. So he says, that's what I'm like. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. So he clears up, this isn't a misunderstanding. Jesus doesn't go, oh, no, 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 you thought these were tax collectors and sinners? No, 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 no. This is, this is, this is something else. You know, they're, they're fax collectors. You heard it wrong, you know. They're not sinners. You, you understand, that's gossip, and that's not actually true. He actually didn't do that. He doesn't say that. He go, he's basically saying, yeah, yeah, tax collector. Betrayed his family, betrayed his people, works for Rome, steals. He's an embezzler, extortionist. He's a fraud, and he cares about no one, not even his own family except for himself. He'll make a buck off of his own kids if he had to. Yeah, that's whose house I'm in. He's sick, and he needs a doctor. That's why I'm here. So you'll notice when Jesus explains it, he's not saying, oh, big misunderstanding. He goes, no, where the misunderstanding lies is not in how bad these people are. No, they're bad. What you're misunderstanding is what I'm doing here. This is where we go wrong in the church. We go, here we are, forgiven people. Our sins are forgiven us. We've been cleansed. We've been atoned. And there they are. Bunch of people, you know, rebellious people that don't care about God and they're atheists and they, they want to do what they want to do and they're out there and 
We want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our kids. If they're in a public school, get them in a Christian club or pull them out and homeschool them so we can give them the, that, that layer of protection they need because there's that dark world out there. And we understand that. I mean, they're kids. Very impressionable. It's tough. But then we never allow ourselves to grow out of it. We just kind of go into work. We just, we just pay attention to what we have to do and then we come back and we only hang out with Christians and we only play board games with Christians, and we, we're just, we just have been taught to kind of push away from the darkness. Or the opposite. Maybe you grew up in a church and they're like, hey, enough of that fundamental nonsense. Look, Jesus hung out with sinners. So go. Go to the bars. Go hang out with them. Laugh at their jokes. You know it's funny. Be one among them. Don't be such a stranger. They'll never come to church if they don't realize you're at least cool. Go be cool with them. Go be among them. Jesus did it. And they'll point to this verse. And what both of those groups are missing is these last couple verses here where Jesus explains himself. The group that doesn't want any contact with unbelievers is missing Jesus' mission. How can you possibly be a physician and apply help to the sick if you don't have contact with them? You have to have contact with them. You can't help them. But then you have the other group that says, no, let's just be cool. Let's all pretend we're sick. Hey, let's just act. Oh, yeah, I'm sick too. <laughs> like we haven't found the antidote. You found the antidote. How can you not bring it up? How can you not talk to them about this medicine that you found from this ultimate physician that will radically change their lives? Well, because they're not going to want to take the medicine. They think the medicine tastes nasty. Right. It's like when a parent is trying to tell the kid, you're trying to hide it with candy, and they try to make the Dimetap taste like grape, and it doesn't. And you just, at some point, you just got to be like, here, poof, swallow it. Because they need it. So Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 they're not sinners. And he doesn't go, oh, my bad, I shouldn't have been hanging out with them. What he says is, they are sinners, and I'm not hanging out. Can we stop saying that? Well, Jesus hung out with sinners. What do you mean by hanging out? Like he just played Call of Duty with them and chatted about nonsense? for an hour and then hung it up and if that's hanging out that's not what Jesus did he was there on mission he went into that house with a purpose and the purpose wasn't to get Levi to think that he's cool he didn't try to downgrade his holiness so that they wouldn't feel so exposed no they know exactly who Jesus is and he goes in there on mission to get them out what he's communicating to the scribes and the Pharisees, it's not bad that you guys study the law. What do you do with it, though? All you do is kind of have your little huddles in the synagogue and you talk to each other and you give no, no chance to someone else, especially the tax collectors. You make up all these laws about if they touch you, they're unclean, and you're allowed to lie to them. And you guys, you guys keep creating all these barriers that, first of all, weren't there in the Old Testament, and second of all, miss the point. Take that law, the Torah, and show it to them. Show them how it's more delightful than walking, standing, or sitting with wickedness. This is more delightful. Come check this out. It might be a bitter pill to swallow at first, but when you start getting better, the other stuff starts tasting bitter. This stuff starts tasting good. It's like weaning yourself off of McDonald's and you're eating vegetables for the first time. Eventually, that tastes nasty, and you, you can tell there's nutrition there. Some of you don't even believe that. That was probably a bad example. You're like, <laughs> that'll never happen. 
Jesus tells them, I'm on a mission that you guys have missed. And because you guys have missed it, that's why you don't understand how I'm picking the team that I'm picking. I don't pick people that are perfect. I pick people that are sinners. And they can be the worst sinners of the bunch, and I can still select them. Why? Real quick, you remember that first verse right at the top? Jesus is by the sea. What's he doing? He's teaching them. What is he teaching them? What is Jesus teaching them? We remember in the beginning when, G, when Mark lays out what he's saying when he teaches, that's in chapter 1, verse 15. You just turn the page over. You see the content of what Jesus was teaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he's teaching. That's what he was teaching when the paralytic dropped on him. That's what he's teaching at the, side, at the edge of the sea when he sees Levi and he passes by. No doubt that's what's dominating the conversation around that table as they're reclining. And what Jesus is communicating is that he calls people who believe and repent. But he doesn't call people who believe that they don't need to repent. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes was that they thought themselves righteous. When Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, he's, he's saying, I didn't come for people who think they don't need the physician. You guys are lost. I came for people that are bleeding. They know they need a physician. I came to people that they think they're so bad, no physician can fix this. So they don't want to go to the doctor. Why did Levi forget the synagogue? He just chose tax collection because probably, I'm imagining a little bit, but probably he's one of those guys that's like, look, I never fit in at the synagogue. Everybody's memorizing scripture like this, and it takes me a real long time to memorize scripture. Isaiah 6 is read from the front, and everybody's like, mm, mm, amen, and I don't know what is going on. There's seraphim or flying, there's eyes and wings, and I don't know what's going on. I just feel lost. Might as well make money. I don't get this whole God thing. Jesus steps in. And he shows Levi for the first time. And it's not about how much scripture you understand. It's not about how smart you are, how many verses you can memorize in a quick fashion. It's about following me. It's about allowing me to pave the way for you. My broken body and my spilled blood creates the opportunity for you to believe and repent. Well, how much am I allowed to repent of? Dude, I'm using you as an object lesson to everybody else. Even Levi can follow me. You're going to help me extend the gospel to the worst of the people because they're going to see a life changed in you. If you're here this morning and you're, you've been coming to church, but there's still, there's still a block there, you're just not sure that God can forgive you if we only knew what was there. You see yourself in the leper, you see yourself in the paralytic, you can't do anything. You see yourself in Levi. If everyone around you only knew, they would feel disgraced to be sitting next to you. Well, that's not true. And even if you feel it's true, this passage is here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this passage to demonstrate to you that Jesus doesn't pick his team based on track record. He picks his team based on what he can make you into through faith and repentance. Let's pray.